0: Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader, and that's the name of sort of the entire channel and overarching premise of everything that I do. And then all of the individual series then have names, um, and I do more this more for my own uh, purpose and intention than anything. So the Man Card Study was uh, a Bible study aid that I I whipped together because anyone can lead a Bible study, no matter how skilled or talented they are, as long as they prayerfully move forward in the fear of God and know how to find a verse in a Bible. Um, so I whipped together some little cards that have a few questions and key verses that focus on what does it mean to be a godly man. And then I just talked through those. And uh, then I am in the middle of and doing, I don't know how long it'll be. It's uh, There's a lot of stuff. But the uh, Blue Collar Bible Scholar is a series for Breaking down the deeper things of God so that an average construction worker can feel like they have a solid mental grasp on what, what's going on. And uh, just breaking down the uh, the deeper things of God that are really complicated and have a really high bar for entry for absolutely no reason. Because uh, the local churches tend not to do that. And uh, so that's, that's my goal. I'm going through, I'll eventually start doing Greek and Hebrew stuff, uh, basic theological concepts. As far as uh, you know, what is theology? What does the word um, propitiation mean? Uh, they've got all these big fancy words. You got to spend hours learning definitions so you can parse a sentence to know that oh, God's not angry at us because Jesus died. Okay, um, I didn't need to spend four hours studying uh, propitiation and expiation and stuff to wrap my brain around that. And there's there's no low bar for entry for any of this stuff um, because. Believe it or not, you're not the first person to read the Bible in the world. A lot of men who have been on earth longer than you have, who are a lot smarter than you, have, uh, have read these things before and come to some of the same conclusions that you have. And so whenever you are doing this, I, everyone needs to read the Bible for themselves to know where they stand and then also start making uh, their, their steps the first steps into a larger world to to go into this big conversation that's been been going on for two thousand years with a lot of really smart guys who speak speak dozens of languages uh, of the really high level scholarship on uh, theological concepts half of it's in German they don't they don't have English translations for it uh, so the the deeper down the rabbit hole you go the the more you have to kind of know other languages or just wait for an English translation uh, and chalk it up to, oh well, or find English summaries of what that guy says. Uh, It's a big, big world out there, and they've been having these conversations for centuries, thousands of years, 2,000 years, uh, if you're not going back any farther. Um, Because some of that theological conversation can be seen in the writings that are around the Bible as far as um, pagan literature and uh, even in, you'll find Greek philosophy echoes some of the themes of the Old Testament just because God made the whole world. And the more you think about how the world works and operates and you seek truth, you're going to get really, really close. That's why a lot of the early church fathers um, look at Plato and say, ah, that guy knew what he was talking about. Um, because he was contemplating truth and he was he was striving for it and trying to find it. I no, no judgment call on, on Plato. He also got a lot of stuff wrong. Um, they never say that they're inspired. Now let's use him to understand the Bible. No, no, they just point and go, hey, see this guy's thinking about truth. Eh, there's a little bit of Logos in there. Look at that. Uh, That's potentially an intentional reference to the idea of Logos, which is a Platonic idea that uh, is kind of being winked at or I not stolen, but placed in its proper context as the word of God made flesh uh, Plato was writing about logos a long time before um, and was was kind of a big deal at the time so when John uses it it's very intentional to say you were close but you were also wrong the real logos there's a little little wink at the uh, the Greek cats out there as, uh, as John did that as simple as his Greek is um, I think that was a sharp cookie so this doesn't really fit into any of those other series. Um, it's not really like a life lesson or anything I've learned. It's just kind of some opinions. I got some opinions. And I'm I'm just going to ramble a bit on uh, three different uh, topics that are all kind of related. And uh, uh, first off is I'm taking part in an awesome thing called Project Baby Landlord, uh, which is amazing. Uh, but that leads me to pal around with some other cool YouTube dudes who feel, it feels like they're all kind of at the same stage in life and in their Christian walk that I am, uh, where we're all uh, young dads trying to figure out how then shall we live. And uh, one of the ideas that's been floated around is the idea of a commune. And I just, I have enough history knowledge to know this is a bad idea. Christian communes historically fail. Because all communes fail, because socialism is a failure. Because it's all socialism. The moment you dissolve the lines between private property, everything falls apart. The only place that socialism succeeds is in a home, in a family, with a father as head who has the best intentions of everybody inside of that house. They have all things in common, and everybody is given what they need, from the single pool of money that comes from the father going out and working and doing meaningful things for other people in the world, either providing goods or services for other people. Uh, Anytime you expand socialism, that family mechanic, where there isn't really a hard line of private property, because as a father, it's my house, and I'm going to take this toy for discipline because you need to learn something. They don't have private property until they go out and go on their own. Um, just, they don't, I allow them to, as they buy things with their own money, money that I gave them, uh, for doing chores, uh, in a fabricated economy to teach them. It still isn't real. They don't really, he doesn't really own those rollerblades. I allow him to own those rollerblades with money I gave him that he earned to buy. When you expand that beyond the family, it falls apart. It falls to garbage because all men are created equal. And in a socialist structure, someone has to be more equal than everybody else. Animal Farm lays it out perfectly. That is every socialist structure, no matter how Christian. Take a moment and Google Munster, Germany. Uh, it's spelled just like the cheese with an E in it, not Munster, like the. They're so much better than the Adams family. They should have gotten a movie. That was a robbery. Munster, Germany. I'm probably butchering it. I don't care. Uh, it's like an umlaut over the U. There was a group of Christians that managed to democratically take control of a city. They ousted the existing governor, voted in their own guy, and turned the entire city into a Christian commune. They had the best intentions in mind. They were all following scripture, and uh, it was less than a year. It just fell to garbage. Fell to absolute garbage. Uh, they're just feces all over the streets, starvation, typical socialist utopia immediately took place. The temptation of the people... Somebody has to decide where all the property goes. When everybody owns everything, it means the government owns everything. And it means whoever's in charge of the government really owns everything, from a practical standpoint. And that quickly descends into just rampant chaos. If you look at the Puritans, they tried it. They did it for a year as a small community. Everybody knew each other, all good and godly people who fled persecution in uh, England. And they come to the new world, the new land to make the Christian utopia that they knew they could. And the whole city was a big socialist commune. And inside of a year they said, oh, that was a mistake. Not doing that again. And they went right back to a standard free market system. You know, they used some commerce, they made some money or bartered. And uh, they were back to it. Everybody had their own private property. And uh, it was just incumbent upon you to give of your own resources as others had need. But there wasn't any force of law behind that. And that really is the better way to do things. Now, it's awesome to have an idea that you have Christians living in close proximity together where you're close enough geographically to help each other because the internet (coughs) is this, uh, false, it is a community (coughs) and it's awesome that you don't feel so alone, but it's also not a community. Uh, if you're crying, I can't reach out and give you a hug. It's, it's just a, a magic rectangle in your hand with a little tiny face on it. Uh, and, and we, you, know, you can crowdsource campaigns and uh, send each other money and stuff, which has been awesome to see, even in the secular world, that the image of our creator God is so undeniable that even uh, secular humanists will reach out and help someone they think is in need. Uh, it's led to a lot of deceit and stuff. But the hearts that, that give money is well intended. Uh, and the internet mobilizes for powerful things consistently. It's not a real community. Uh, Nobody's there to to watch your kids while you go out on a date with your wife so you can keep your marriage strong. It's a magic rectangle in your pocket. It's, It's real, but it's not real. It's not touch, hold, have with your hands real. The people around you are real. And too often we get sucked into this world of generalizing and we get wrapped into outrage. I found out a thing is going on. 5,000 miles away from me that doesn't affect me immediately and personally and I'm angry about it now and I can tell other humans about it and get them angry about it now and so I'm going to do that. And then that's it. That's usually where it ends. Um, but with this community of good and godly men that I've I've found, it's it's a lot deeper than just the momentary outrage of, of the world seems to have in some Christian circles and uh, definitely conservative circles have that's the merry-go-round they live on, is, I'm angry about this. Now, another thing I'm angry about, I'm going to live angry to the point that I have, you know, adrenaline fatigue from being angry for a living on TV for your entertainment. Not for your edification or information, just entertainment. And so all of this this anger becomes just impotent. We just brew in it. The whole point of emotions is to drive us to action. We... They move us. They're emotions. The word motion is in there on purpose for the, the etymology. Because otherwise you would just be a self-interested robot. you do exactly minimum amount of effort needed to exist. That's why autistic people are so weird and awkward to be around. Uh, the less they're in touch with their emotions and other people's emotions, the more they're a ruthlessly efficient machine about doing whatever it is they want to do. Whether it's math or watch Matlock or, you know, whatever that guy has going on, he's ruthlessly efficient about it to the point of he doesn't care what he looks like, how he dresses, how he affects other people. There's no emotion there. There's no heart to it. Uh, it's, it's there and you can reach it. And I've, I've worked with uh, special needs kids and stuff before. And, and you can you can connect, but you have to work to connect. And you have to understand that there's a limit to their ability to connect and, and meet them where they're at. But that, all that, that said, without emotion... You become closer to a mindless robot than uh, than anything. And so that and emotion's there for a purpose, and that purpose is to drive us to act. It is godly to have emotions. Just look at God in the Bible. Look up anger. God gets angry a lot in the Bible. And it's important for us to understand, while it is godly to be angry, it is not godly to be wrathful. It is God's part to be wrathful. The government has the job, delegated to them by God, to exhibit justice. But if you're not an arm of that government, and you're not acting under the authority of that government, you don't have that authority to render justice and vengeance in the world. Uh, Paul writes Romans 13 about how you should obey your government and their ministers unto God to render justice, reward the good, and punish the evil. He writes that under Nero, the guy who famously lit his garden with burning Christian corpses. Which may be apocryphal, I'm not sure, but he wasn't a great person. Uh, Jesus lives under the—I mean, he, his family fled when Herod went to uh, you know kill all of the children in the city they were in, but he lived under the authority of Herod, who was a just an awful man. Ancient Rome killed children by throwing them off of bridges. Or leaving them outside. It's called exposure. Leaving them outside to just die in the wilderness. And maybe you'd pick it back up tomorrow if it survived the night, maybe. And, uh, what did the Christians do? Well, they got angry and shot everybody. No, they didn't. They got boats. And they got nets. And they knew what time of day everybody came to throw the kids off. And they just caught them with the nets. Fished them out of the river. They're like, ah, you don't want them? We'll take them. Good stuff. Um, but the difficulty with the anger is if it doesn't drive you to action, it drives you to brew and, and stew in it and just ruminate. Because then it's really easy because of this magic rectangle that we think is real that isn't real. It's a magic rectangle. Okay? It doesn't do anything but show you information. All you do is generalize. If you If you angrily generalize, THE CHURCH! What church? You mean God's bride? You're talking about God's bride in some pretty disrespectful tones. God's bride that he loves and he will present to himself pure. It's a little arrogant to think that you're the last good Christian on the planet. You need to understand that every other good and godly man who finally read his own Bible for himself and had the lights turn on and go, Oh, we're screwed. You're not the first one to do that. We've all done that. Everybody who goes to Bible college, they spend their whole first two years living in that. They'll learn a new thing every single day. And they're like, no church I've ever heard of does this. But it's in the Bible. And the church in the Bible did it. Why don't we do it? Every single day you learn a new thing like that. And you just you do you live in that. And you you have to learn to process it. And the answer is not run out angrily and shout on the mountaintops how the church is a sham and we need to start our own new church. Because that's why we have denominations. Enough people did that, that there's endless denominations. That's why. And then you're like, there are too many denominations. I'm going to start my own church. Dot, dot, dot. Then what? Yeah, it takes a long time to change a large-scale organization from the inside. So find a smaller one. Find a small church. Find a small denomination that is, you know, about 90% in line with your personal doctrine that you've discerned from reading your Bible for yourself. And plug in to that small church. Plug in hard and find a church that's already moving the direction you want to move and get involved and help push that church harder and faster in the direction that you see as being godly, and maybe you learn something. Maybe you learn you don't know everything. Maybe you learn you were right. And you gotta get as many people going in your direction as you can. But you don't know if you don't try. And you don't, you can't live in a vacuum. It'd be nice to take all of the awesome YouTubers and put them all on a big, awesome Christian compound and bring in utopia. But it's not going to happen. Uh, the best thing is to reach out in the community where God has placed you in His divine providence. Where you're at right now is exactly where God wants you to be. And if He wants you to move, He'll call you to move. And it'll happen. And if He wants you to stay put, you'll notice a lot of doors close and you get frustrated very quickly. But it's easier to steer a moving car. So be moving, be searching, be looking for that next step. And, well, yeah, you can write off, just the church, I've been to churches. I spent my entire life going to church. And when I was 30, I found an amazing church. I didn't know churches like it existed. Then I found another small church in the same denomination as the one I was going to that was struggling along and needed the exact skill set that God had given me. And I went to that church leaving good friends, friends as close as family, because I felt the call of God to help build his kingdom in a small church right by where I live. You need to find them. America is replete with churches. Go to Google Maps and just Google church. Don't cross out any denomination except Mormonism and Seventh-day Adventists and, uh, Trying to think, what's the other sneaky ones? Oh, Jehovah's Witnesses—they're all, they're all cults. Um, all of the other denominations—they have their problems, they have their quirks. By and large, they're honest people seeking to do the will of God. And so, if you don't like the church you're at, you don't like the one you found. Go look somewhere else. In a little town called Moberly, Missouri, there are only about 23,000, uh, 2,300 people. That feels. Twenty-three thousand. I always forget. You can you can Wikipedia it. I'm, I don't have it right in front of me. There's only about twenty-three hundred to twenty thousand people. It was it was a really small town. It was big for that area in Missouri. Uh, it was the biggest town south of Macon and uh, north of um, Columbia. It was the biggest town north of Columbia in uh, in Missouri. Now, beyond that, you've got Macon, which is a little smaller, and then it's just pff, nothing but farmland. And that town had almost one hundred and fifty churches in it. Like, you wouldn't have more than a 30-person congregation uh, for each individual church. And you had some big churches, some churches with only like seven people. And everybody in town knew the churches. It was a small enough town. You knew the churches that were involved in the community. And there were only about three or four major ones that were working and actively reaching out in the community. And so you plug in, you get involved. Find out what the body of Christ in your area is already doing, because it is, it is a little arrogant to look at every other Christian that has ever existed within the last hundred years and say, they're all idiots, I know what's right, I know what's supposed to be done, they don't know. Maybe they know more than you think. At least take the time to learn. Build relationships, and build the community you're in. Uh, A wise pastor once told me, you're the pastor of where you're at. If you work at McDonald's, you're the pastor of McDonald's. I am the pastor of my electrical company. You are the pastor of wherever you're currently employed. You're the pastor of your family. And while you won't be the pastor of your church, because there are authority and structure issues that, that happen... Take it upon yourself to make every Christian you meet on Sunday be better for having met you and talked with you that day. And you'll come out alright. Even in lousy churches, you'll find a core of people. You may have to start your own church. Get on Meetup and see how many home Bible studies are going on in your area. There's more than you think. Use this magic rectangle to create a real community around you. There, the world is a lot bigger than you think it is. Even in the middle of Iowa, you'll be surprised what you can find. In the middle of Missouri. So anger, anger is useful. And it, it seems to counterbalance fear. It's important to fear the right things. People who are fearless, we call stupid. Uh, but people who are nothing but angry are also stupid. I phrase it... Um, I've learned martial arts since almost I could walk. And I I phrase it a lot, I see it a lot like fighting. And we're called to be warriors, we're called to wear the armor of God, and to uh, fight the schemes of the devil. And so when you're fighting, it's important to stay balanced and to stay centered. If you're too angry, if you're too aggressive with your strikes, if your nose gets past where your feet are, your nose over your toes is the... there's a lot of fighters who are punch drunk and it's easy to remember things when they rhyme so don't let your nose go over your toes the moment your head the moment your center of gravity starts to exceed your base gravity takes over and you fall down under your own weight or if you're simply a little off balance your enemy's first significant shot is going to send you tumbling or maybe they wrap your head and pull you off balance into their next shot Uh, it, it can get really unpleasant very quickly uh, at the same time, if you're too afraid, you cover up and you fall back and you flinch and you cover and you never, you never throw a shot back. You never fight back. You will eventually lose. You can last with a solid defense and a long time you will last, but you will slowly eventually lose that fight. You have to be fierce. And so it's in that centered balance in knowing when to retreat, in knowing when to advance, uh, when it's when you need to lean in and really follow through on that shot, or when to lean back and stay cautious. And everybody's balance is going to be a little different based on how God built them, how they lean. If you look at uh, keeping it simple, we'll keep to boxing, and two famous boxers, Mike Tyson and Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather plans the long game. He consistently plans slow, slow, strategic bouts where he waits and waits and waits. And when the opponent is tired, then he strikes and then he demolishes them. And it looks like he's afraid. He spends a lot of time moving backwards, but it's always metered. It's always careful. It's always covered and careful and strategic. And he's always centered and in balance. He never just blindly retreats, and he does strike, but he has specific times that he strikes. When there's an opening, when there's an opportunity, when the enemy is off balance because they overextended themselves, then he will strike. On the other side, you have Mike Tyson, who did almost the exact opposite. He was very aggressive. They're in two different weight classes, but it fits for the analogy. He was very aggressive. He had a very fast and aggressive style, and most of the people that beat him, you watch, they played like Floyd Mayweather. They turtled up, they played cautious, they'd tie up when he'd get real close, wait for the ref to break it up, and then they would cover and tie up again, and get him tired, and then after he was tired, they'd work their magic and punch him out. But if you tried to fight him while he was pushing and leaning hard, he'd beat you, because that's what he did, was he leaned in hard every single time. Not that he was reckless, but he was very strategic about being aggressive, because he knew that was his strategy. He would be aggressive, heavily, early on, and wear you out, wear your defense down, and then he beat you. There are two different strategies for accomplishing the same task. It's the same game. Whether you're aggressively pushing, you need to be careful not to overextend yourself and stay covered. It doesn't mean you don't have a defense. You have to use both strategy and aggression, and that is how you win. Whether you emphasize being reserved and careful and having an ironclad defense and only striking when there's a good opportunity, or whether you err on the side of striking consistently often and then keeping up a good defense uh, so as not to overextend yourself, they're both oriented to the same goal. And when you have a group of people, you need both personality types, both kinds of people to compromise them, to have that consistent, relentless, focused, strategic advance, never overextending because of the reserved characters, and never getting stagnant and just playing defense because of the aggressive characters. You need both, and in that dynamic tension, a more powerful movement can be created. So, just my thoughts and opinions on those things. The uh, TLDR, Christian communes never work out because all communes never work out. Be angry, but do not sin and use your anger to motivate you towards action, and understand that it's in a a dynamic tension between cautious preparations and uh, uh, defensive posture with uh, an aggressive, consistent advance is the best way to move forward from a place of balance and strategy. Uh, And Those are my two cents, which is probably what I'll call the series that comes out whenever I have an inkling to share my two cents. Uh, That's all I've got. You don't have to take my word for it. I'll see you next time. Godspeed.